Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. I'm excited to have one of the co-founders of a fund called Hayboro Investment Partners, Ben Rundle, to talk about his journey, investing philosophy, management and culture, and also uh, valuation. Welcome, Ben. How are you? Good. Thanks, Raymond. Thanks for having me on the show. I understand you're, you're usually based in Sydney, um, but uh, Adelaide boy at heart. So that's right. Um, yep, born and bred in Adelaide. Uh, yeah. So I'm here at the moment for Christmas. Great, um, and so I guess that's the that's the name of a suburb um, close to your heart in Adelaide as well, um, Hayborough. That that's right, and that's where the name for our fund came from. Awesome, uh, but yeah, normally based in Sydney. Uh, awesome. Um, so I'd like to dive into um, your personal background. Um, how did you get started investing and um, how did you get so passionate about it? Yeah, I mean, I think like anything, uh, I initially got into investing just through a fascination with how the stock market worked. Uh, I had a mentor, uh, a guy by the name of Jeff Day, who ran a stockbroking business in Adelaide, who eventually sold it to Macquarie Bank. And he would often talk to me about investing in companies and how the market worked. And it just really fascinated me. And I think that, you know, if you sort of let your, I've sort of found, if you let your um, uh, path be dictated by what you're interested in and what you're fascinated about, you'll tend to do better than, than the alternative. Uh, my father had a successful career in property and I always had a view that I didn't want to go into property because I sort of wanted to create my own path and, and not be in his shadow. So that wasn't that wasn't really an option, um, but the stock market was something that fascinated me, and and ended up pursuing that career, which has been fantastic. Hmm. It's interesting you say that because I think Aussies have a fascination with the property market. Um, there are similar traits, um, but were there any key differences between property and the share market that really attracted you to um, the latter? I think it was initially born out of the fact that I didn't really understand the stock market as well. And property, you know, it's pretty easy for anyone to understand. But at the time I was young and didn't, you know, I'd hear about these people that made money in the stock market and some would make money by you know, investing in, in mining companies and some would make money by short-term trading and, you know, others would make money by buying assets at, you know, 50 cents on the dollar. And it, it fascinated me that there were so many different ways to uh, to make money in the market. And that's something that, that has, has really, I mean, it's stuck with me today. You know, I've, I meet people from all parts of the market who make money in various ways and, and have been successful in doing so. But I think that that's kind of what initially attracted me to it. The, and and w- what I sort of found was that you know, over the course of my career, you end up coming up with your own ways and own ideas of how you think um, money should be made. I'm very fond of a, of a saying that you can borrow someone else's idea, but you can't borrow their conviction. And what that means is essentially, you know, you can take a stock tip from someone else, but, you know, that stock does well or it does poorly. How will you know when to sell it? Um, I think to make money in the market, certainly the way that I have been able to do it is by holding on to companies uh, for a period of time where not everything is going fantastically well all the time. Um, sometimes the business is going well and the share price is not. 
it's obviously a very volatile um, or can be a very volatile way to, uh, to to make money. But I think over the over the course of the long term, if you own good businesses, you know the share price will eventually follow the performance of the business. And if you're owning the shares for the long term, if you're right on the underlying business, then you know, it's been my experience that you'll make money doing that. Hmm. Yeah, I think borrowing conviction has been an important lesson for me because you always see these really reputable fund managers like yourself um, commenting on businesses and stocks. Sometimes you can get led to um, a certain position on a certain stock. Um, so, yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, I think there's nothing better for someone in the stock market than to do their own work and really come up with their own ideas and their own convictions. And, you know, that might differ from what other people are telling you, but sometimes you, know, you can make that, sometimes that's where the best money is made, where you own a company where, you know, not a lot of people like it or not a lot of people want to own it, but it does well. And, you know, probably the, a recent example of that is Afterpay. I mean, there, there was so mm-hmm. many, there were so many bears on that business, you know, from $2 up to well over $100. Uh, there was plenty of people who said it was too expensive. The model doesn't work. It needs to be subject to credit rules. Yeah, maybe all of those things um, ha- had some portion of truth to them, but it didn't stop the fact that the share price did incredibly well. And those people who had their own conviction and held on to the company that whole time have made an extraordinary amount of money. Hmm. And on the topic of businesses, um, I understand that you found a media business called Quick Charge. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, so actually, maybe if we go back a step from that. So um, if you look at my career to date and how I got to where I am now, um, the traditional model of going into funds management at the moment seems to be uh, that uni graduates want to go straight into it. And while that can be a fantastic path, the, the path that I went down was actually via the stockbroking route. And why that I think that worked for me was the fact that if, if you go to a funds management business, you know, there's very low turnover in funds management uh, amongst staff. So you go to a funds management business, you work there for, you know, maybe five to 10 years um, and maybe you stay there, maybe you move on, but you're learning one style of investing um, mm. being the way that that fund invests money on behalf of their clients. On the stockbroking side, you get to see hundreds of different fund managers and their different styles of investing, what they do when the market sells off, you know, aggressively or, you know, goes through a, a, um, a, you know, a, a significant downturn, um, understand how they behave, what sort of stocks they buy. And, you know, you'll sort of naturally gravitate towards those fund managers who um, their investment style resonates with you. But the, 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 um, the point of it is that you just get such a broad array of how the market works. I mean, how the sell side works too is a great, is a great thing to learn because, you know, I see fund managers who, you know, might be able to value a company, but they don't really understand the nuances of, of dealing with the sell side and what works and what doesn't in terms of those relationships. And that, that for me, gave me a great foundation to forge my own um, uh, path on you know, how I thought about investing, how the media business came about. So in 2007, 2008, I was working at Macquarie Bank and we were in the structured product division, which um, created all of these derivative type products which um, were then sold to investors that had various forms of leverage, um, perceived protection. Uh, and during the, during the um, GFC, a lot of those products you know, unwound 
significantly and lost people a huge amount of money. And that was a good lesson for me in so far as that you want to stay away, or personally for me, I want to stay away from derivative products whereby I don't really understand what the underlying risk involves. And I think a lot of people that own those products don't understand the risks involved and they might work well in, in one market environment, but they can, they can very quickly unravel when you hit a period of, you know, at the time where the credit, smart, credit markets essentially froze. Um, so our division at Macquarie went from making the most amount of money in the whole bank to making the biggest loss in the whole bank in the space of 12 months. And at that point, um, you know, it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, I hadn't really had any experience running a business and it was something that I wanted to gain insight into. So myself and a good friend of mine started a business called Quick Charge Media, whereby we had um, essentially these kiosks which charge up your mobile phone battery mm. and they've got a TV on them as well, which we were hoping to sell the media on. And uh, we, would, we had them throughout most of the major airports in Australia. Uh, we had them through universities um, and we had them through you know, some um, convenience stores and that sort of thing. And it, it, it was great insight from two points of view. Firstly, the fact that you know, entrepreneurship, not everything goes well. Um, mm. There's a lot of people I speak to who want to start their own funds. Um, it, it, it is, it's certainly not for everyone. There are times, you know, I had a conversation not that long ago with Michael Heiner from NetWealth, which has been you know, an absolutely fantastic success story. You know, if you speak to Michael about the early days, there are plenty of times where they thought it wasn't going to work. You know, there's a lot of dark days um, running your own business. And that was something that, that you know, we became acutely aware of pretty quickly. And the other lesson I learned out of it was that, um, and, and this is something that stayed with me today in terms of my investment style, is that return on capital is one of the most important things um, that you can look at in terms of financials for business success. So when we had these kiosks, I think from memory, they might have cost something like $3,000 US each. So if we wanted to roll them out through Australia, which you know, we, we certainly did for a while, there's a significant capital cost that comes with that. Um, and the return on capital of the machines wasn't fantastic. And we quickly found that out, that, it, that you know, while the returns were, were okay, uh, it was going to require a significant amount of money to scale the business around Australia and then potentially go offshore. Uh, so we eventually sold that. Um, and uh, you know, that was, as I said, a fantastic experience in terms of running a business. Um, but the whole time while doing that, you know, I sort of had one eye on the stock market and one eye on the companies that I owned. And, and that was... That, that, I guess, reinforced my view that you know, what I want to do in the long term is stay in the stock market and invest um, on behalf of clients. Hmm. Were there any employees as part of the business? Did you have to manage that side of things as well? Uh, no, there was just two of us, uh, which okay. made the workload pretty hectic. Um, oh, right. Okay. I can imagine if we had employees, that would have hmm. uh, only increased the complexity of it all. And I hmm. admire people that run uh, very large teams because I can't imagine it's easy to do. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, I think, yeah, it's incredibly hard to manage a big workforce. So you often appreciate the, um, the absolute big companies in the world like Amazon that deserve like, so many employees, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a very difficult people. And yeah, I'm a, if we look towards my investing philosophy, I'm a big believer in the fact that people run companies, not spreadsheets. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, you, you need to nurture those people and look after them and, that's not easy to do when you've got a, a, a staff that, you know, can number into the hundreds or thousands. Mm. Yeah. On staff, do you, do you handle the recruitment side of your own um, fund? 
to pick uh, and so choose? The, at the moment, it's just George and myself, uh, okay, which, makes, yeah. which makes life easy. Uh, yeah. The approach that, that I think we will take towards hiring other people is that we will hire very slowly. So mm. we'll spend a fair bit of time, uh, well, in fact, probably a lot of time looking at, at the right candidate, you know, making sure that they fit in with the business and, and our philosophy. And you know, really, that person, you know, what we're looking for is a high level of integrity. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you can you can train someone to to look at at companies in the same way that we do, or even bring their own insights. But mm. uh, if we you know have someone that has you know, high level of integrity and, and fantastic character, I think that's a that's a great start. Ben, I want to take I want to peel back um, earlier in your role as a portfolio manager at Naos Asset Management. I believe you spent six years there. I did, yes. Yeah. So. Um, Naos uh, were a client of mine when I was on the stockbroking side, uh, and I got along well with Sebastian Evans, who's the managing director there, and eventually moved across uh, to help them run a portfolio. And uh, Naos has a very high conviction approach to investing, which involves portfolios that have around 10 to 12 positions in them. Uh, and if you're going to have 10 to 12 positions in your portfolio, you need to know those companies better than a lot of other people do. Um, and you also need to own them for the long term as well. So that deep uh, research approach uh, was a fantastic way um, to understand a lot of these companies, how they work, you know, what makes companies grow and prosper and do better than the competition over time. Uh, you know, and yeah, if you're running a portfolio like that, you're gonna have various levels of, of success. And when, when things go poorly, um, you know, they tend to, uh, go quite poorly for a while and stay that way. But you know, it, it is a very great um, lesson in terms of doing enough work on a company to understand it uh, and, and really know what the drivers of the earnings are going to be. Mm. Now, I understand your current fund holds around 20 to 40 positions. Which That's is... right. So, we're, yeah, we're less, we're less concentrated than, than yeah. what I, we were at, um, at NAOS, that for sure. So I think we've got almost 40 companies in the portfolio at mm. the moment. Is that due to your personal preference in the way you and George like to um, invest? Yeah, that's it, you're spot on. That's that's a, that's a personal preference uh, in terms of you know the companies that we're looking at. Um, what it does do is it gives you the flexibility to own a business whereby you know you you you're probably still um, understanding a lot of things about that business. Uh, if you look across our portfolio. Most of the companies we own, you know, George and I have known for, you know, five to 10 years. Mm. Um, but there's a few sort of smaller positions, which, you know, maybe they've recently listed or we've only just recently come across them, whereby we own uh, shares in the company, but it's only a small portion. And I'm, I'm a big believer in the fact that you don't really know a company until you own it. Once you own it, you start to obviously do a lot more work on it. You take a lot more interest in it. Um, you know, you speak to a lot more people about it and you really start to understand the company a lot better. So we've given ourselves a bit of flexibility to um, employ that approach within our portfolio. Mm. Now, just to switch gears a little bit, um, I think it would be great to get um, the personal side of um, you. Um, do you do anything outside of work that um, keeps your mind off investing or helps you rejuvenate? Uh, well, we've only... Um, when when you're running your own company, it's uh, there's not a huge amount of time outside of of work uh, for anything else. Uh, I do like to exercise each morning. Um, I think that that 
has been a fantastic way for me to start the day and, and you know, re-energise myself and, and really hit the ground running. Um, when the business day starts, uh, you know, outside of that, I try to play tennis once a week uh, and I've got a young family as well who, who keep me busy too. Okay, awesome. Um, it'd be pretty, pretty hype to play tennis, so it must be, must be tough um, at this time of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does get pretty warm. Yeah. Um, so in terms of your overall investing philosophy, um, I guess it was strongly shaped by NAOS Asset Management, given you spent a lot of time there, so it's very high conviction. Um, in terms of... Um, trying to find investment ideas? Is it turning over the rocks and trying to find the highest quality businesses um, and monitoring them over time? And is, is that how you go about finding ideas? Or Yeah, so I would say to start with my investing philosophy has, um, has taken various um, points from my time at NAOS, uh, my time on the, on the stockbroking on the sell side, uh, and brought that all together into one um, philosophy that you know i think that that resonates with me uh, and the reason that george and i went into business together is because it seems to resonate the same way with both of us um, and a lot of that is the fact that you know as i said before people run companies not spreadsheets and we really want to invest in the people behind these businesses uh, in terms of ideas and the way we come up with those i mean they can come from all various forms um, we've built networks up over many years of investing. Uh, you know, I've been in the market now for 15 years, George for 20. So over time, you build up you know, these investing networks, which I've sort of found have been uh, the most fruitful in terms of ideas. We're speaking to other um, people that, that you know, share a similar philosophy to we do, to, to what we do. Um, you know, small investing groups that often get together and talk about stocks, speaking to people in the market, many, many company meetings, reading annual reports, watching the buying and selling of directors. I mean, they can come from various forms. Uh, it, it seems to be more of a, a, a serendipitous uh, outcome, if you like. So there's a lot of hard work and running around and speaking to as many people as possible uh, for very few ideas that come out of it. But when they do, uh, they're often worth following up on. Um, and you know, you'll hear great investors say, you know, if you come up with a handful of ideas per year, you know, even one to mm. two, um, in terms of new ideas, you, you're probably doing well. And you know, I mentioned before, our portfolio is constructed of companies we've been looking at for, you know, sometimes over ten years. Mm. Um, you know, we know the businesses, we understand the companies, and you know, it's often said that you know, the best ideas are already in your portfolio. So you know, our job is really to understand what we own and 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 make sure we're still owning it for the right reasons. So once you've found those high quality investment ideas that could potentially make into the portfolio, um, what's the screening process like? What do you focus uh, most um, at the start? Yeah, so if we're looking at, um, so there's, there's two sides to how we look at a company. And most of the work we do is on the qualitative side. So understanding how the company operates within its industry, uh, how they treat their staff, what their track record looks like, you know, what their approach to capital allocation is and that sort of thing and why really trying to understand the recipe for why they're going to do better than the competition. Um, and then if we look on the, uh, the quantitative side of things, you know, if I'm coming across a business for the first time that I don't know, the first thing that I'll do is go back and look at the last five years and look at what the return on the incremental invested capital is. So simply comparing uh, the current capital base to what it was five years ago and how that's changed. 
and how the earnings of the business sort of changed over that that time as well. And if that is at a high rate, say above you know, 20, 25 percent, then it's certainly a business that that starts to get um, starts to look pretty attractive. Um, and then you know we'll look at the free cash flow of the business, the balance sheet, um, preferring to probably use the cash flow statement as a proxy for valuation rather than the um, profit and loss statement. Um, and then once we've come across the company, we will speak to as many people as we can uh, in and around that company. So we'll speak to, we'll try to speak to former employees, we'll try to speak to current employees, obviously the management team. Uh, suppliers, customers, trial the product ourselves and really try to understand the secret source behind the business. Mm. So, yeah, I know from reviewing your investment process and your philosophy, um, it seems like there's a strong focus on management teams. I think you have a line there. You want management teams that think and act like true owners of the business. Could you expand on that? Yeah, so it, it's been our experience that founders of companies who own a significant stake in their business will make decisions in a different way from a management team who don't have any stake in the business, have come from elsewhere, uh, you know, are getting paid a lot of money and maybe getting uh, incentivized the wrong way to grow the business. Whereas if you have someone who owns the company and, and has skin in the game, uh, you know, they often, as I said, make decisions on behalf of of, of the shareholders, not always. Sometimes you do come across uh, founders who don't necessarily do the right thing and they're very self-serving. But if people have a large amount of their own portion or net wealth invested in the business, then sometimes self-serving can benefit all of the shareholders. Mm. In your most recent um, update for November, you mentioned a company called Beacon Lighting. Um, I think a retail shop that a lot of Australians um, have come across. Um, yeah. And it seems like, based on my initial review, it they do have a high-quality management team and it's, it's family-run. Yeah, that's right. So I initially came across Beacon Lighting when they IPO'd. Um, yeah. I think it was in 2014. Yeah, and I right. looked at it thinking, okay, this is a business which you know, sells lighting products. Yes, it's, it's, it's family-led, um, but you know, is there really anything inside the business that, that, that can get me excited as to why they can, they can win in their market? Uh, and it, 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 it took you know, numerous years of following that business to build up that conviction. But, I mean, mm. it's been a fantastic success for, story. So Ian Robinson um, bought the first store, and I think it was about 1975, and the family still own 55%. They haven't sold a share. Mm. And if you go back to their IPO in 2014, you know, they've tripled the size of the business, and they've required no extra capital to do that. And that's something that I think is lost uh, on investors in the market fairly regularly is just that the extra capital required. I mean, anyone can go out and grow a business by spending a huge amount of money going and acquiring other things or, you know, reinvesting significantly in their business. And um, it, it's those businesses that, that don't require, you know, huge amounts of capital to grow that really I think will end up doing well over the course of time. Mm. Um, you know, they, they, they went through a pretty difficult period in, I think it was 2018, 2019, where um, you know, economic conditions were okay without being great. But there was, um, you might remember when Masters closed down their business, uh, they had a lighting um, segment, which they essentially dumped all of that product onto the market. So it ended up being a very difficult period for Beacon. But sometimes when you see these companies and how they operate through difficult periods, 
uh, it can really give you um, great insight as to you know how they handle it and how the business recovers from that. Um, yeah, if we look at Beacon today, uh, they control I think around about twenty percent of the retail lighting market in Australia, which is about a one billion dollar industry. The trade market for lighting in Australia is about two to two and a half times the size of that. And that's an area of the market that they don't have much market share in at the moment. I think they might have two, three percent. And they're starting to push into that that side of, of the business. And they're using, you know, there's a, another successful company who have done this in the past, uh, the plumbing business called Reese. Mm. And, you know, they're trying to really copy the, the, the Reese playbook into um, having success with doing that. And it's my view that the management team, given their track record in running this business um, and their position in the market, will have success in doing so. Mm. Um, on top of that, yeah, they they've also got an offshore business which has really been bubbling away in the background uh, for quite a number of years now. But they are start, starting to show some success from that. And the benefit of that business too is that a lot of it's done online. So uh, using e-commerce channels, which can significantly improve the gross margin and improve the returns of the overall business if they have success doing that. Um, they've also got a property trust asset business where they are essentially owning the land that a lot of their stores sit on, uh, which I think, you know, if we look out a few years' time, that'll end up being a, a, you know, a really big business. So I look at Beacon today and think, well, this business can be, far, uh, you know, in five years' time, it can be twice the size of what it is at the moment. Um, mm. On my estimates, you know, you're currently paying about a 55 to 6% free cash flow yield for the company, even after the recent rally it's had. Mm. And that, to me, I think, seems to be a, a, you know, a fairly reasonable investment to make, particularly given you know, the background of the family and how successful they have been in growing this business. Um, you know, I think they'll continue to do that and the business will be significantly larger in five years' time. Mm. Yeah, I think another qualitative aspect I found really interesting from reviewing the past few years in terms of this management strategy, it seems like they're purchasing a lot of the franchise stores. I think they've started off with a lot of franchise stores and now they're taking control of it and really trying to yeah so i mean the, the argument of franchise and company owned is yeah it, it it works differently for for different businesses i mean Domino's mm. has been a fantastic success story which has worked well with the franchise um model of doing business and you know someone like beacon um you know who owns the stores has, has done well with that model you know i don't think there's necessarily um, a better way to do it, but it might depend on you know different industries or you know different management styles. But you know both you know two examples there of great success stories that have done it differently. And I guess that's you know that that's also the case in the stock market. You can have two people that invest mm. completely different ways um, yeah. who who make money but you know, have no relationship in in terms of the ways that they invest. Mm. And so just reflecting on your earlier comments about. Um, monitoring the business over a long period of time. And since it IPO'd in 2014, it seems like management have taken a really long-term approach in uh, how they deploy capital. I mean, they've tried to wait for the opportune times. Yeah, that's that's very much a, a founder-led approach that we've found too, is that they'll make decisions, you know, four or five years out or even further than that. Whereas, you know, someone else might be incentivized to you know, grow the business over the next one to two years and they'll make decisions on a short-term basis and 
it's often the case that that just doesn't work. Mm. And so, I think, you know, if you look at the great, the great, um, the great businesses that have been built over time, you know, are exactly mm. the same thing. I think Jeff Bezos says you know, the decisions you made five years ago will shape how today pans out. I think that's very true for a lot of businesses that are listed. Mm. Um, so we've talked about a high quality management team um, at Bacon Lighting, but have you come across any management teams that you initially thought were high quality, but then it turned out to be the complete opposite or, or maybe did not meet your um, high expectations? Uh, there's been a few times where, so we don't, uh, if, if looking at a current portfolio, a lot of the companies in there are founder-led, um, but there are a few that aren't. And um, there's, there's uh, cases where a business might not be founder-led, but the people running the business certainly behave as if they are founders and treat the shareholders uh, accordingly. Um, one example recently where that didn't play out quite as expected was with that core. So uh, Daryl Bolomi didn't start that business, um, but he was handpicked to run it. And in our time in dealing with Daryl, and again, I think they listed somewhere in 2014, he has been an exceptional uh, manager of that business and he's treated the shareholders uh, very well in terms of capital allocation. Uh, he's he's yeah, basically portrayed all of the traits that you would see in a founder. Uh, recently, only a few weeks ago, it was announced to market that he's suddenly leaving. Um, now, that looks to be as a result of a board dispute, um, but the fact that Daryl doesn't own you know, 20 or 30% of the business means he's not in a position to turn around to the board and say, well, you know, I own this business. Um, yeah, this, is, this is how it's going to be done. And I mean, there's a, there's a lot of water to go under the bridge there, but you know, it's a case of you know, the board versus Daryl and you know the fact that he's not a founder means that he's out and then and in my view the, the company's lost a fantastic operator and we'll wait and see how that 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 goes for the for the company but the share prices reacted um yeah in a way that would suggest that they the market probably would prefer to have Daryl back in the seat mm. when you say that some um, companies that aren't founder led and management teams that might behave like founders. Um, do you monitor certain personality traits or characteristics of the person and their decisions over time? Is that how you try and glean, glean that? One of, the, one of the key ways to understand that is, um, well, firstly, there's the cultural side of things. You know, how do they treat their staff? How do they um, treat their customers and all that sort of thing? But one of the ways that we like to um, assess the management team uh, is how they allocate capital. And it amazes me how many companies that we find who have not really given much thought to capital allocation. If you look at any business, you know, there's essentially three ways they can allocate capital, right? They can reinvest in their business, they can pay a dividend, or they can go out and acquire something. Um, there are plenty of companies in Australia who pay a dividend. We spoke to a company recently and we asked them, they had very good returns on capital. They said, why are you paying a dividend? Why don't you reinvest in the business at those high rates of return? Mm. And their answer was that, well, we've, already, we've always done it that way. And that, to me, just, just yeah, said that, well, they clearly haven't thought about how they allocate capital as, as part of, you know, on behalf of shareholders. And you know, it's, it's often the case that you know, 
management teams may not have been taught that. You know, they may have risen through the ranks of the company and and really had no experience with capital allocation. But you know, it, it's it's our view that correctly allocating the capital can significantly drive shareholder returns over the long term. And if it's done incorrectly, um, you know, you can find a business which you know might have looked okay from the outside. Management might have told you all the right things, but the business ends up dwindling and and yeah. Not not performing as expected on behalf of shareholders. Hmm. Yeah, um, I think monitoring capital allocation decisions is very important, and it's something that can be done, um, I guess, remotely um, through monitoring the financial statements and whatnot. Um, but in terms of the behavioural side of things, have you found it more challenging um, to? interact with management teams and trying to gauge um, or extract information or insights? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, we're quite fortunate in Australia where most of the listed management teams uh, will conduct presentations fairly regularly and they're fairly accessible um, to fund managers to have a chat about the business. And the more that you, the more that you meet with a company and the more that you, um, you know, yeah, talk to management and talk to people around the business, the more you're going to understand it naturally. So we try to do that as much as possible. You know, if there's a company that we're following quite closely over the reporting season period, we might attend, you know, four of their of their presentations just to glean you know, extra insights into the business. And obviously it takes us longer to do that and we cover less ground, but hopefully we understand those businesses uh, better than what a lot of other people would. Mm. So you touched on culture. Um, which I think is a very important factor in assessing a business. Um, and it's a, another qualitative thing that you can't really quantify. So I think it would be great to uh, go into a deep dive into um, the ingredients of yep. what makes um, great culture. I think in yep. your October update, you mentioned PWR Holdings, where you actually visited the premises and, um, you had that one line that was said by Keys about inventory. Yeah, um, he'd rather look at it rather than look look for it. <laughs> yep, yep, that's right. Um, yeah, look, it, it, it's our view that the cultural side of things in a business is very much overlooked by the investing community. Um, if you look back, to, and and the way this sort of came about was through years of studying. You know, really, really successful businesses, and most of the time they have been offshore. So, you know, if you look at, on a Home Depot for example in the US, you know, two guys started that business in 1978. You know, in a very, very competitive industry um, against absolute behemoths. You know, how did they win? Like, how did they end up becoming the the winners of the business? And it's our view that that really, and and um, there's a fantastic book uh, called Built from Scratch, which, um, you know talks about the founders um bernie marcus and arthur blank and you know it's really if you ask them what the key ingredient to them winning it was the culture inside of mm-hmm. business and and i think that comes from the top and there's the famous story about home depot and that you know there was a customer that came in with four tires and said oh, i want to return these four tires and um the, the shopkeeper looked at him and said well we don't we don't stock tires and she said no, no i definitely bought them from here Anyway, they gave her a run, refund um, anyway because of the fact that they thought that one customer relationship was worth more than uh, you know, what four tyres would would cost in terms of the return. Um, yeah, and that 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 culture is driven from the top and it permeates through the whole business. And 
there's a there's another example probably um, that I can think of on the on the ASX. You know, James Kelly at Lifestyle Communities. Mm. He has been a huge. I mean, at the outsider would look at that business and say, okay, well, it's just a property developer. You know, we've seen these listed on the ASX before. You know, and they invariably do well for a period of time, and then you know, run into difficulties with a poor development. He runs that business um, based on two key um, principles, and they are that. The first one being you never get a second chance at a first impression. And the second one is that someone will forget what you told them, but they won't forget how you made them feel. And when I heard James say that for the first time, I thought, wow, I reckon this company could potentially have the key ingredients for um, what could be a successful business. I think it was trading at about a dollar fifty at the time, and I think it recently hit close to $20. Um, you know, not not doing anything particularly exciting, but just executing very well on a day-to-day basis. And I think, you know, there's a few examples like that. You know, Keys Wheel at, at, at PWR, I think, is a fantastic um, example. You know, the staff out there, they, they, you know, they go in on a Friday, they all wear their favourite racing team colours. Um, you know, we went and visited the factory and you very much get the feeling that those people working inside the business yeah, you know, they they genuinely want to be there, and they have uh, they're, they're proud to work at a company like PWR, and people that are proud to work for the company and feel like they have ownership in the company tend to do, in my experience, tend to do a much better job for their business than someone who is just told from the top what to do and you know get on with it. And and you know while we're on the top of examples, you know you look at a company like John's Ling Group. Um, it's run by a guy called Scott Didier. And the way that John's Ling, or the business to start with, is, is in insurance building and restoration. And, and again, you look at that business from the outside and you think, okay, well, it's a building business. Uh, it's a commercial contractor that really should trade on a low multiple. But the way that they run their business uh, is essentially they'll find uh, two partners essentially to run one of their divisions and they call them uh, you know rock star partners and they outline in their annual report what they look for in these partners and they hire on integrity and character over what someone's cv looks like with the view that they'll be able to train them and, and grow them into into being a fantastic operator they'll give those two operators 20 percent of the company of, of that division and uh, john's ling will own the other 80 percent and that ownership uh and culture that's driven by doing so has propelled that business to become you know, a daylight leader in their field. And you know, that they're, they're the kind of key ingredients that we're trying to find. And we're trying to find them based on the research that we've done of, of businesses offshore. Um, and they can come in various forms. You know, they can come from you know, very low margin. I mean, if you look at Costco um, in the US, it's been a hugely successful business that's run on extremely low margins. And the analyst looked at that originally and said, it's a low margin business that can't be high quality. But it mm. turned out that, you know, the culture of the business and the way that they um, ran the company and treated their customers and suppliers ended up being, uh, you know, a key ingredient to their success, despite from the outside, it not looking like, um, you know, a particularly attractive business. And that they're, they're the key ingredients that we're they're trying to we, that we are trying to look for, and and they're not easy to find. But the more uh, the more we look at good quality companies and how they've been successful, you know, there's a company listed, you know, a bit closer to home. There's a company listed um, in New Zealand called Main Freight. That was started in 1978 in logistics, which is a hugely competitive industry. Uh, yeah, and 
investors in that company have made you know, over a hundred times on, on their money, and it, it's just a fantastically well-run business. You know, they put their their profit and loss for each week, you know, sits on the walls so all staff can see. So everyone's understanding, you know, what what the business is doing. Everyone's on the same page. That 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 high level of transparency, you know, it's these little key ingredients that end up creating a business that I think um, can can take market share and win. And you know, that's not always obvious from you know the industry they're in or or simply looking at um, you know what the business does or, or what the numbers look like in any given year. Mm. I like how you disclosed um, the insights that could come about from reviewing management incentive structures. I think there's a lot of focus on, um, as in lower level management, not executive yep. management. I think there's a lot of focus on executive management when people talk about um, stocks and companies, but actually trying to understand how the lower level or lower tiers of management are incentivized and the attitudes is is probably uh, the real engine that drives um, you know high high returns on capital for businesses. Yeah, look, I agree with that, and I think that you know a great um, uh, not every company operates this way, but a great way of um, managing teams like that that we've seen is through a decentralised management structure. I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is probably the most successful um, company that, that's employed that type of structure. But, a, you know, another business we own called Supply Networks, um, you know, they sell parts for trucks and buses. They've got I don't know, probably 25 um, branches around Australia. And if you're sitting in head office and you've got a branch up in North Queensland, the, the manager of that branch is going to know more about the customers in that area and what they require and what is going to drive them to buy products from supply network rather than someone who's directing instructions from, uh, from Sydney or Melbourne. Mm. And, you know, that approach, you know, certainly that I've seen, I mean, the, the example I gave before of John's Ling, it's been successful mm. for them. Um, yeah, that, that approach can often mean that, you know, these management teams or the, 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 the branch level managers or lower level executives can feel ownership in a company and purpose in a company. And people that have a sense of purpose will do a better job. And, you know, it, it's our experience that companies that operate in that way, particularly if you've got a lot of, I mean, Supply Network probably only has, as I said, around 25, but some companies have, you know, thousands of stores um, throughout, you know, Australia and even globally. You know, how can they manage those stores effectively? Well, you know, one way to do it might be to, uh, have the manager, the manager of those each individual stores making decisions with the company philosophy in mind, but making decisions that are going to suit that particular area and, and, the, and the customers in that particular area and, and monitor that by looking at, at weekly sales records and, and staying on top of them. But I think the decision-making part of things, if they can leave them on their own, it, it can often lead to better outcomes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think decentralised... Um, so just decentralized structure resonates really well with me. Like having spent um, maybe uh, nearly a decade in the commercial workforce um, in accounting, I think I do enjoy um, a more decentralized structure where it's more of a hands-off approach where you actually feel like you have more responsibility. I'm not sure how you may have felt um, through your roles in previous funds and institutions but I think you probably you probably feel more empowered when you're given more responsibility. 
Yeah, I think, look, everyone, uh, I'd be, it would surprise me if most people listening to this podcast didn't, hadn't worked somewhere whereby, you know, the, the top level management made a decision that you just thought that is not going to help our customers. Mm. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, that's the way that a lot of businesses are run. Mm. Now, just to probably move away, we've, we've talked a lot about cultures, uh, management and organisations. Um I think it'd be very interesting for listeners to hear about your evaluation process. Um, so more about numbers rather than the qualitative aspects um, of yep. your process. Yep. Yep. So um, valuation is a funny one because I've seen uh, very smart people in this industry um, try to model out a company, you know, to the nth degree and try to come up with a valuation um, that, that makes sense to them. And it has been my experience that the more complicated that that is, the more likelihood of them being wrong. And so the way that we approach valuation is fairly simple. Um, we prefer to use the cash flow statement than we do the, the profit and loss statement. And the reason for that is because the cash doesn't lie, whereas the profit and loss statement can. Um, there are various ways to manipulate uh, the profit and loss statement, but the cash that's coming into the business is often a very good indicator for what the true profitability of that company looks like. So um, we, we tend to focus on the cash flow and the balance sheet more than we do the P&L. Uh, and the way that we value a business is simply by looking at, you know, what does that business earn most of the time in terms of, of, of a free cash flow yield? And then we'll compare it to various alternatives. I mean, if you, investing is essentially, you know, comparing your options to, to various alternatives, whether there are other companies listed on the stock market whether it's other asset classes like property or bonds, um, you know, if we can find in the current environment a good quality business that's growing organically at 10 to 15%, we're paying a 5% free cash flow yield for that business with a strong balance sheet um, you know, and it's driving unlevered returns, then you know, that, that seems to us to be a fairly healthy valuation rather than you know, if you pick up an analyst report, they'll look at EVs to EBITDA, um, they'll look at PE, um, nine times out of 10, they'll create a valuation based on a 10-year discounted cash flow model. Now, if anyone had ever done a 10-year DCF and got it right, I would be amazingly surprised. I mean, no one can predict what's going to happen in, in 10 years' time. So we, we look at the companies you know, today and we, we obviously make an assessment of what we think it might be able to earn down the track. And if we're paying a reasonable price for it, then you know, we can still be wrong on what the company eventually ends up earning, but, you know, the valuation that we're paying today will hopefully mean that, you know, if, if the company does well, uh, we'll, we'll end up doing well by owning shares in it. You highlight the importance of return on invested capital as a key metric. So as for that key metric, do you use, often use free cash flow to try and monitor? Yeah. Yeah. We'll just use free cash flow um, over... Yeah, I mean, it would depend on, each, on on what company is, but usually just free cash flow over the um, over the capital base, um, normally the equity or the issued capital. Um, yeah. Sometimes a little bit subjective, depends on, you know, if the company's you know, holding a huge amount of retained earnings or if they're holding you know, assets at, at cost rather than true value, it, it can move around a little bit, but, um, you know, it, you tend to get a pretty good idea pretty quickly. So it seems like you try and understand the key... Um, key cogs in the overall business that are going to 
um, extract value in terms of free cash flow. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, sometimes, you know, a backward looking approach can help as well. And we can say, okay, well, you know, this business that we're looking at uh, over the last five years, the return on capital has been pretty poor. You know, if we're going to own it today and what we think is a reasonable valuation, why do we think the return on capital of that company is going to improve? Um, if it's a company that's demonstrated they can provide high returns on capital, then, you know, that, that obviously gives us increased confidence that they'll be able to do it in the future. Excellent. Um, so we talked about um, your background, your investing philosophy, management, culture, a lot of practical examples. Um, were there any books and resources or famous investors that um, really, really shaped your um, overall uh, process? Yeah, so um, with regards to books, I would read a new book every two weeks at least. Um, and I think that I've learned an incredible, incredibly more from reading books about companies, about investing, like successful investors than I ever did from any of my previous academic work. Um, there was a guy I worked for at, at Molus, which was now called MA Financial, who runs um, some funds for them called John Garrett. And he really um, drove that, uh, that, that approach for me and, and, and you know, recommended you know, a huge amount of books, which I had never heard of, that just had been fantastic in, in understanding, helping me understand what makes a good business versus what doesn't. Um, he actually has a website called mastersinvest.com. Mm. And essentially on that website, he has collated what he thinks are the most important lessons from great investors and great um, business leaders and compiled them into various uh, quotes um, uh, sorted by subject matter. So I, I think that's a fantastic resource. And then in terms of books, um, you know, the best one that I read this year was um, Investing for Growth by Terry Smith. So Terry is a, uh, a fund manager out of the UK, um, you know, has a, employs a very much a return on capital approach to investing. Uh, and the book is essentially a collection of his investment writings over the last um, period of time running the fund, which is called Fundsmith. And you know, to a huge amount of um, insight from that. Uh, William Thorndike's book, um, The Outsiders, profiles eight CEOs who um, ran businesses, not necessarily in the most high returning businesses, sometimes, you know, in very competitive industries, but ended up doing a fantastic job for shareholders. I think that that is just an exceptional book, um, one that I've read more than once now, um, you know, with some great lessons in it. And the more that you understand how those, you know, call it outsiders operate. The more that you can sort of pick up these in terms of whether they um, possess any of the quality of those um, managing that book. Um, I mentioned Built from Scratch, the book about Home Depot. Um, I, that's a story that I'm just fascinated with in terms of how it, how it was so successful. Um, Ken Langone has a book called I Love Capitalism. He was um, very much involved in that. Home Depot story as well. Uh, and then um, probably the other one off the top of my head is the Main Freight book. You know, so I mentioned Main Freight before, investors have made over 100 times their money. They've got a book called Ready, Fire, Aim um, and essentially profiles the story of that business since they started. And, you know, there's a huge amount of lessons in there, I think, not only for investors but for, for other people running businesses that they can learn, um, you know, which I took a huge amount of insight from. But I think that, I mean, 
certainly for me, um, reading regularly has just been the absolute difference in in forming my investing approach and it helping me understand you know why a good business is that way, why a business can be more successful than competitors. You know, if you look at two businesses from the outside in the same industry, you know, which one's going to win? Which one's going to take market share? And, you know, it's been my experience that, you know, you start to pick up these patterns um, for recognising, you know, where and when that might be able to happen. Yeah, I love this approach in terms of building a pattern recognition to identify future high-quality businesses. Um, do you often take notes when you read um, these books? Yeah, I'll often highlight and underline. Um, yeah. And yeah, usually write up some form of notes that I can go back to, okay. and and you know, and then even just rereading the the good books that I've read in the past. Okay, awesome. Um, so we've talked about how important people are in an organisation, and I think um, the closest people with in um, one circle plays a very important role in shaping um, or developing someone. So. Um, I like to ask you who's had the most influence on you uh, personally and professionally as, a, as an investor and why? Yeah, it's um, head and shoulders without a doubt. Uh, John Garrett, who I mentioned before, um, he has just had a huge, I started working with John probably eight or nine years ago um, and his influence on, on me as an investor and the lessons that he's taught me have just been incredible. I, I haven't come across any other investor that even comes close to the insights he has. Um, it, it, it's just extraordinary. I mean, he's, he, he loves the, the stock market. He's got an incredible passion for it. Um, yeah, that, that passion yeah, is infectious. It rubs off on, on anyone that's around him. And you know, I think he's going to go on to be you know, an incredibly, incredibly successful investor. Yeah, I've seen a lot of his posts on Twitter and so a lot of his summaries of the great books like Charlie Munger and Chuck Ackery and yeah. Byron Buffett. And, yeah, it's incredible how much, how many books he absolutely devours. <laughs> oh, it's extraordinary. I mean, you, yeah. you just, you, you can't keep up with someone like that. Um, you know, just his passion and um, and desire to, to continue to be learning and, and find, you know, new approaches and, you know, even debunk his um, current ideas is is just incredible. I mean, you just you, you can't compete with that. So yeah, follow him on Twitter. On um, yeah. Masters Invest is a is a great way to stay in, in touch with the things that he's thinking about. Yeah. And what's the best way to get in touch with um, yourself? Uh, so our website taborinvest.com.au. Uh, Anyone can email me, have a chat, uh, or George. Um, George is probably better for insights than I am. Uh, and, you know, we're always happy to have a chat, meet new people, talk about talk about stocks. Um, you know, we love it. It's what we do day in, day out. It doesn't feel like a job for us. It's something that we would do, you know, even if there was no money involved behind it. It's just, we just love it. So um, always happy to have a chat to investors and, and talk about stocks. Mm. Well, it's been extremely um, fortunate to have you on the Australian Investors Podcast. I think um, the Australian Investing community would um, gain a lot of lessons and insights from your practical examples on the importance of culture management and also um, the way you carry about your investing. Um, and also good luck um, with, in the new year um, with the fund. Yeah, thank you, Raymond. And thank you for having me on the, on the show. I really appreciate it.
Thank you, Have a great Christmas. You too.